Please turn in your copy of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 20. And to get us into the setting of where this scripture is going, we'll take up at the end of Exodus chapter 19. It'll tell us where we are and, and who is there. Exodus 19, verse 24. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people, and he spoke to them. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are about to embark on a very momentous chapter in your word where you speak directly to your people. Your voice is heard, and it is understood, and you lay out before them what has become known throughout history as the Ten Commandments. Father, I pray that you will lead us in how to grasp these and understand these and see you. Lord, please open our hearts and minds to your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we not elevate it into a position that it is not. May we not bring it lower than what it is. But may we see your glorious law, that it is good and holy and just, as your word says. And Lord, please teach us. Please open our minds and hearts to the gospel as we study. In your name we pray, amen. And God spoke all these words, is how that verse begins. The anchor of this introduction is that this is Yahweh himself. This is God literally speaking to the people. And he is speaking directly to them in a voice they hear and in a voice that they can understand. And we know this adds... Wait, because Moses reminds Israel in Deuteronomy 5, he says, Yahweh himself spoke these commands. These are not secondhand orders. And when you see the word there, God spoke these words, um, it's also translated, as we most commonly look at these things, as commandments in Exodus 34:28 and in Deuteronomy 4:13. So when it says, God spoke these words, the same as saying God spoke these commandments. But why listen? Why, why would the people listen? Well, he, when he spoke these words, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There's essentially three Hebrew concepts or words there. Yahweh, Elohim, Palat. And it's a personal Lord, the Almighty God, and the Deliverer, the Deliverer from slavery to sin. You listen, Israel, because Yahweh heard your desperate cries. You listen because he rescued you out of centuries of cruel slavery. You listen because throughout the plagues in Egypt and the exodus out of there, Yahweh declared over and over, these are my people, not Pharaoh's. And what does he then say? Well, we, we can look at these Ten Commandments and they can be divided into two groups. The first four, command how to live godly toward God. The second group of six commands us how to live godly toward each other. And we're going to jump right in. Godly living toward God, Commandments 1 through 4. What does the Lord God desire in our relationship with Him? 
first command. You shall have no other gods before me. Translated over against me. You shall have no other gods in my presence. You see, there is but one true God. The fact is still debated in this age. But the truth is not in doubt. Romans 1.19 begins, What may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even His eternal power and Godhead, or His divine nature, so that men are without excuse. If you look in the book of Judges, Judges 17 and 18, it records a deplorable history of what happened in Israel when they began to drift away from one true God. And other gods here in verse 3 is not a proof text to say, well see the Bible admits there are other gods. No, Deuteronomy 4.35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other beside him. Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Isaiah 44.6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And we even get to the New Testament and Paul writes to the Corinthians. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and there is no other God but one. Second command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God forbids the creation of any religious or artistic image that is like any of his creation anywhere with the intention to honor or worship or in some way serve that image. Why? He makes it clear. It's because God is a jealous God. Yahweh is a jealous God. He will not share worship. Egypt and the surrounding nations, they were full of idols made in the shapes of snakes, of fish, of dogs, of frogs, etc. Idolatry was rampant. False worship was everywhere. It was sin. But sadly, God knew Israel's weakness. And he gave this warning in Deuteronomy 4, beginning of verse 24. He said, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly, make a carved image in the form of anything, and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Then the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. Then you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve God's the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. The danger was very near. The Lord God is spirit. 
He has no form. He has no form that we are to imagine or create in order to remind us of him. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning with verse 15. Deuteronomy 4:15 through verse 19. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you out of Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Idolatry is sin. The consequences of this idolatry passes on from one generation to another. Passes on from one generation to another. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We'll take up where we were just a bit earlier there. It says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God nor were thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This tells us what happens to men as they knowingly shift their focus from the one true God to their own imaginations. The consequences of this idolatry passes on and it passes on to the next generation and the next. To who? It's very specific to those who hate me. Those who hate me. But praise God. Praise God when one turns to God in faith. That idolatrous chain is broken. The Lord shows mercy it says here. To thousands. And, and it could be inserted thousands of generations. Thousands of generations. To those who love him. And keep his commandments. The third command. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This may be done by using the Lord's name in false worship or idolatry. Using the name of Jesus or the Lord or God or even Yahweh in any way that is disrespectful or dishonoring is taking God's name in vain. If I use the Lord's name to curse or to blurt out when I'm shocked or amazed or when I shut my hand in the car door or someone swerves into my lane on the road 
I am using God's name in vain. If I call myself a Christian, but live in rebellion against God's word, I am taking the Lord's name in vain. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. I ask you, can a church, can a school, can a nation take the Lord's name in vain? If it calls itself Christian and then practices hypocrisy and denies the authority of Scripture, it has done just that. The fourth command. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The word Sabbath. It means to cease or to rest. Now this is called a creation ordinance. It's called that because Yahweh points out that at the time that he created the universe, he set this example. He created all that exists in the span of six 24-hour days. And then he chose to rest on the seventh. At a later date in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses even ties the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt as reason for remembering the Sabbath. There he reminds Israel, Deuteronomy 5 verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The fifth commandment. The fifth commandment emphasizes the importance of godly family relationships. In fact, there is one scholar who actually divides this command out as a third category. In his scheme, there are four commands toward God, a center command toward family, and then five commands toward mankind. We will now look at godly living with others, commandments 5 through 10. How does the Lord God want you and I to live with each other. The fifth command. Honor your father and your mother. That your day may be long upon the land. Which the Lord God is giving you. Honor. Honor. What does that mean? It means to give respect. Importance. Seriousness. It's actually. It has to do with weightiness. Gravity. Give that to your father and your mother. Honor. Honor them, even if it is not earned. A very good friend of mine was horribly abused as a young boy by his father. But he has still chosen to obey God. 
Though his father has never apologized, this brother serves and encourages both his mother and father continually in their old age. His faithfulness to Jesus Christ and growth as a Christian have been wonderful evidence of how Christ has truly blessed his obedience. Honor your father and mother while you are young. While you are young, honor them. Honor your father and mother when you are old, while you still have opportunity. Paul echoes this instruction in his letter to the church in Ephesus. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. The sixth command, you shall not murder. The verb for murder here is never used to describe life taken when Israel was at war. Elsewhere in God's law, distinction is made between the intentional taking of someone's life, murder, and an accidental killing. The consequence for murder is execution. Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God, in the image of God, he made man. Exodus 21, 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 20, or 35, verse 16. There we read at least six instances when if someone intentionally strikes another person and kills them, he is a murderer and he will be executed. Capital punishment. Capital punishment is not grounds for denying the sanctity of life. Actually, it was prescribed by God before the sixth commandment was ever given. So valuable is the life of a person made in God's image that God gave capital punishment in order to protect lives and for murder to be restrained. The seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. Like the fifth commandment, this one upholds the sacredness of family relationships. It focuses on the sanctity, the holiness of marriage. In Genesis 2, the Lord God created a marriage with man, Adam, and woman, Eve. Marriage was designed, it was created, and it was ordained by God. The Pharisees one time came to Jesus trying to trap him with this very command. And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, prescribes stoning to death as this penalty for adultery by men or women. One commentator sums it up, saying, In short, the seventh commandment forbids any sexual activity that violates the covenant of marriage. Period. There are no exceptions and no loopholes, end quote. The eighth command, 
You shall not steal. Stealing, it's the intentional, dishonest taking of something that belongs to someone else. Whether you are five years old or you are 95 years old, be it a pencil, a sandwich, the tip of, at a restaurant off the table, a car, or an inheritance. If you steal, then you are a thief. By so doing, you have taken for yourself what the Lord had placed in someone else's possession. The ninth command. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now this command specifically means that we must not give false testimony about someone in our community in a court hearing. Most, most of us agree this is wrong. In fact, we call it perjury and it can result in jail time. But when we go beyond the courtroom, and even sometimes within it, the lines become blurred, they become dotted, and then in some cases non-existent. One source indicated that according to a survey of nearly 3 million job applicants, nearly 50% of American resumes contain one or more falsehoods. Over 50% had lies. When Hosea brought the Lord's charge against Israel, he appears to be referring to the Ten Commandments of God, but there he uses a general, general word for lying. And he declares, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. But that, brothers and sisters, we know is not the character of God. Titus chapter 1 verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Hebrews 6.18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, lying is condemned by Yahweh. And the tenth command, the final command here, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything else, that is your neighbor's. Coveting. When you have a strong desire, you haven't lied, you haven't stolen, you haven't committed adultery, you haven't killed anyone to get who or what you want, you have a strong desire though to have what someone else has, that is sin. To make sure we understand how broad this command goes, the Lord gives six specific examples. And then he closes with this one. Anything that is your neighbor's. You see, coveting may be the most stealthy of all the sins we are commanded not to do here. Perhaps that is why Paul uses that specific command as evidence of why the law of God is so important. He wrote, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Paul also equates covetousness with idolatry. Ephesians 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3. 5 and 6, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, 
which is idolatry. And then Paul goes on to reveal that covetousness is one of the reasons why the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Do not think because it's here, it's okay. Covetousness is deeply important to God. The tenth command and the first have something in common. Both are commands focused on the heart. The heart is the control center that we must surrender in obedience to Christ. But the heart is also that which we can only overcome by the grace of Christ. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, and blasphemies. I want to cover a couple of questions now that we've raced through those Ten Commandments. First question is, what is the purpose of God's law? And is all of God's law essentially the same? Now you may be thinking, well that, that'd be fine if I was in a in Bible school and we wanted to look at those academic questions, but I want, to, want you to think about this. For example, sometimes when hearing that Scripture condemns sin, such as idolatry or fornication, or homosexuality, or sodomy. A person defends their freedom in this, and they parry with this comment. Well, doesn't the Bible command you not to wear clothing made of mixed fabrics, and that you shouldn't eat shrimp? You're just picking and choosing which laws you think are important, because I offend you. What do you say? Are all the laws of God for the same purpose? Am I just picking and choosing? No and yes. God's law, God's laws do not all have the same purpose. And yes, I am picking and choosing. But here is why. The law of God is essentially, broadly, anything that God has commanded in Scripture. Now that is obviously very, very broad. But there is more than one use of God's law. And play, pay close attention because I think this will help you to answer some questions sometimes when you're sharing about the gospel because the law is essential for the gospel. The first use is the civil function. This is a restraining use of the law of God. The purpose of the law is to restrain or hold back wickedness. The civil function includes the th threat of a consequence if a law is broken. For example... You steal a car, you get caught, you'll go to prison. If you run a red light, you will pay a pretty hefty fine. These are consequences that the law is there to restrain us with. Romans 13, verse 3, Paul wrote, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise of the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. What do we have there? We have both the reward of praise for obedience. And we have the threat of punishment with the sword if we disobey. 
These penalties may restrain outward sin. But one thing they cannot do. They cannot change the heart. Samuel Bolton said, The law can stop up a polluted fountain, but only the gospel can heal its stream. Second use of the law. It's called the pedagogical. This means that the law can drive people. The law can drive people to see because of their violation of God's law, they are in desperate need of a savior. The pedagogical use of the law drives the unsaved person to Jesus Christ. And this function also works for us as believers. The law can turn us away from sin and drive us back to our Savior Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 7, Paul wrote, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that he thought he was in pretty good shape spiritually. He thought he was in good standing before God until he began to examine the law of God carefully. And then he was shocked to find out that he was dead. According to the law, he was dead in his sin. The third use, the didactic use. And here, the law is the standard. It's the standard or the rule for Christian life. And sometimes it's called the normative use of the law. In Romans 8, verse 4, we read that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirements of the law, Christ fulfilled for us. But they're also to be fulfilled in us. And what are they? Well, we need to know them so that we can follow them and they set the standard for us of how to live for Christ. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, this really reveals more about this. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Brothers and sisters, that is us. We have such an advantage over, over these folks that we're seeing in the Exodus. And sometimes I know, I feel the same way. I think, man, if I could just see that pillar of cloud and that flame at night. Or if I could see the wall of water in the Red Sea standing up beside us as, as two million of us walked through. And saw it collapse on Pharaoh. Well, then I would believe. Then I would be close to God. Well, it didn't work that way for Israel. But God has given us his law upon our hearts and in our minds and he is with us and he will dwell with us in the new covenant that he has given to us. That covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is such a tremendous blessing. So those are three different uses of God's law. But still, I'm going to ask this question. Are commands against wearing mixed fabric clothing and do not murder both to be treated in the same way always observed everywhere and at any time the Bible also makes clear that there are divisions or there are distinctions with God's law I'd like to look at a couple of those the divisions of the law first we have the moral law this is the law the Bible is talking about when it says the law of God is written on our hearts. We know this law 
Because God made us in His image. It is in our conscience. These laws express the nature of God. And they are contained within these Ten Commandments. Jesus listed some of them when He spoke to the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19. Remember that confrontation, that moment. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Well, which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God commands these laws because they are right. Now, I want to say that again. God commands these laws because they are right. The second distinct group of God's law is positive law. These laws are right because God commands them. You see the difference? The positive laws are right because God has commanded them. The moral laws, God commands them because they are right. We'll go a little deeper here. God's people would have never, would have no way of knowing the positive laws unless God stated them specifically. For example, in the garden, God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was nothing inherently wrong with eating from that particular tree until God said, do not eat of that tree. Within this positive law, you have judicial laws. Those are the laws God gave them in order to be able to govern the nation of Israel. And you have ceremonial laws. These are positive laws God gave so that they knew how to worship God within the temple. Judicial and ceremonial under the heading of positive law. Laws that we would not know unless God had not made them specific to us. Here is an example of both, moral and positive law. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. So he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments, and he, God, wrote them on two tablets of stone. Those are the moral law. The next verse. And the Lord commanded me at that time, Moses, to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Those are positive laws given by Moses for the purpose of what? That you might observe them in the land where you are going to cross over to possess. The moral law is transcendent. It is to be obeyed everywhere at all times. The positive law was given specifically for Israel at the time and place when they entered the promised land. One more little piece on this, and I'm not sure of all the significance of this, but it seems very telling to me in a way. We know that the Ten Commandments of the law were stored where eventually? In the Ark of the Covenant, in the, in the Ark that would be in the center of the Holy of Holies, in God's Ark. That's where the Ten Commandments were stored. Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 through 26, though, tells us when Moses, had when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, 
saying, take this book of the law. Now that's not the Ten Commandments. These are the book of the law that Yahweh had just had Moses write. And Moses says, put it beside the Ark of the Covenant. Not inside, but beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. That it may be there as a witness against you. The moral law was placed in the Ark. The statutes for governing the land and even worship in the temple were placed outside. And you can think about that, where that leads you. But I thought it was an interesting fact. That's God's Law 101. Now, we're going to go back to the people of Israel who are still trembling from God's presence, from Yahweh's presence there on Mount Sinai. Verse 18, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled, and they stood afar off. Hebrews 12, verse 20, tells us, for they could not endure what was commanded. If so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Moses was trembling. In other words, translation, frightened out of his wits. He was greatly terrified. But we see two very different responses in the presence of God. The response of Israel, verse 19, Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. These folks were, weren't just intimidated by the loud noise, the smoke, the ground shaking, the fire. They were afraid they were going to die. Now the people are begging Moses. They're saying, We believe in you now. And that's just what Yahweh had promised them. They have full desperate confidence in Moses. Moses now is their lifeline to God. And now we see the response of Moses. First of all to the people. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. You think about Moses' history with this people. It was not a sweet history. They wanted him to get his nose out of their business on several occasions. They accused him of seeking to kill them all on at least three occasions. They had even prepared to stone him to death. But look at how he responds to these frightened former persecutors. And I think Numbers 12 verse 3 gives us an insight there. It says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. That was not always the case for Moses' life. But by the grace of God, he now responds with compassion and with wisdom. And he speaks to them about two fears. The first was the fear of death. He says, do not fear that God has come to destroy you. Banish that fear. Yahweh has made an everlasting covenant for you. But he has come to test you so that his fear may be before you. The fear of God may be before you. Why? So that you will not sin. Keep that fear. It is good. And then Moses responds to Yahweh. He says, so the people stood far off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. See, while the people distanced themselves in fear of this overwhelming God, Moses goes the opposite way. He draws near. He went to God because God knew him 
And he knew God. And even though he trembled, Moses had confidence in this mighty God. Moses was the mediator by people's choice. But Moses was Yahweh's mediator to the people by Yahweh's choice. But now, 2,000 years later, we have a far greater mediator who comes to the great holy God who is just as great and terrifying as fearful in his essence as he was on Mount Sinai. And yet he represents us, he speaks for us, he intercedes for us. So that we have peace with God, as Romans 5 says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our righteous Savior. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. As great a mediator as Moses was, he was never able to meet those perfect qualities of Hebrews 7.26. Only Christ is holy. Only Christ is harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and higher than the heavens. Why? Because he is God in the flesh. That is why Christ is able to save to the uttermost, forever, uttermost, entirely, completely. He will save those who follow and believe on him. And then the last portion of this chapter is, begins to get into the worship of Yahweh. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gold or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it for your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your make nakedness may not be exposed on it. And these final verses begin Yahweh's specific instruction for how his people are now to live in covenant with him. We will see many rules, we will see many laws, we will see many directions that he gives to his people in the chapters that lie ahead. The prohibition against making idols is repeated and it's expanded in these verses. Instruction regarding the altar and how to offer sacrifices are given. But we're going to conclude there and we'll get into more of that as we go into the rest of Exodus. I want to give this quote from one of the uh, commentators. I thought it really capsulized this chapter. He says, This brings us into full focus the grand theological and spiritual significance of all that had happened up to this point. It was the God of salvation who imposed His law on His people. The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. The people were given the law not in order that they might become the redeemed. Rather it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. The law of God is the way of life He sets before those whom He has saved. And they engage in that way of life as a response of love and gratitude toward God their Redeemer. Grace and law 
belong together. For grace leads to law. Saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience. A final verse is Romans 7, verse 12 through 14. What does he say about the law? Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Then he asks this question. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. The commandments of God are holy, just, and good. They are spiritual. And they left Paul realizing that he was carnal. He was of the flesh and he was sold to sin as a slave. This is the truth for every man and woman. It is a crucial dilemma that places you either in torment in hell apart from God our creator forever or in perfect relationship with him as his son or daughter in his presence forever. God himself has provided the rescue. Jesus Christ, the one who will save all who repent and put their trust in him. Thank God for the law. It points us to Christ. Thank God for the law. It shows us how to live and show love to our Savior. But the law can never save. It has no power even to cause us to be obedient. That is only through the grace of Christ. And you need that. We need that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your commands. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, your word is, is a story from beginning to end. It is a library about you. Lord, help us to fathom the greatness of who you are. Lord, may, may we have a fear of you. And yet, may we have a deep trust in you as our Father. Lord, you are mighty, holy, holy, holy. And we, as, as Paul repeatedly says, we're carnal, we're fleshly. But we trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, and he sets us free from that. And Father, those sins have been laid on him, and he has borne the wrath, the just wrath of God against them. And they are gone, paid for completely. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. And we ask you, Lord, please to speak of you through us to the people around us, our spouses, our children, our parents, our co-workers. Lord, whoever we might be in front of today, may we be ready to speak the word of God and share what a glorious salvation is in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.